join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Darren Moore is Senior Lecturer at the University of Exeter's Graduate School of Education, where he's taught since 2008. Before starting a lectureship in 2017, he taught psychology and researched in a further education college and also worked as a researcher at the University of Exeter Medical School on projects related to child and adolescent mental health. His work focuses on school mental health spanning areas including the impact of mental ill health on school attendance and outcomes, how schools can identify and treat mental health difficulties, teachers' mental health and well-being, well-being policies in schools. He's also interested in educational transitions, parental engagement in learning and behaviour in schools, and is part of ReachWell, a group of UK academics concerned about the lack of focus on the needs of young people during the pandemic and who seek to redress the imbalance with scientific evidence. Welcome, Darren. How are you? I'm very well, Cathy. Good to talk to you. One of the challenges when I was researching this interview is that I want to talk to you about everything because all of your research interests are so pertinent at the moment. I know. And also uh, things are changing day by day. So what we might be talking about today could well change tomorrow. And one of the things, for example, in the press today is about psychiatrists saying, please, please, please do not find children who are truanting from school, a very old fashioned word or avoiding school, because there seems to be an anticipation in the mental health community that we may see a spike in school avoidance, in school refusal. Can you just sort of give me, you know, when you heard that headline today, how did you respond? So quite a while back now, it was it was back in March when we were thinking about what was the impact of school closures going to be? And I think from the research that colleagues and I have done around school attendance and emotional mental health, one of the things that we were consciously aware of is just what could be a difficulty returning to school for those young people who uh, might have some emotional difficulties, particularly if they're going to have been out of school for six months and are then returning to a school that might not be, of course, quite as quite as they remember it and might be worried about that. So it's something that's been on our on our mind for some time, and I think it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult, and we're going to need to see exactly what attendance looks like not just on day one and not just week one, but kind of over over the medium term as schools are kind of readjusting to what happens and hopefully getting back to learning, which is, of course, the most important thing. And pre-COVID, I know sort of 13% of children, I think, nationally are persistently absent from school in, in quote, normal, unquote, times. So yeah. what are the general reasons before we move on to children actually attending school and transitioning to senior school? What are the reasons why children in general may not want to go into that school building? 
So if we're, if we're talking about persistent school non-attendance, so we're, we're looking at a government line that's around 10% of sessions, so kind of mornings or afternoons over what would be a whole term or over the whole year, if they're measuring it for that length of time. So we're tending not to think about holidays that could be taken in term time. We're not thinking about very temporary illnesses. We're talking about something over a longer length of time that would account for 10% of the time that young people should be in school. So we're, lo- we're looking at a range of things. Sometimes it's going to be physical illness, and that could be an ongoing thing. So that's predictable. And we would hope that schools would be working with young people, their parents, uh, clinicians, to put in place learning around what could be predictable absences because of time in hospital or just time when they might not be well enough to attend school. And we've seen some interventions and seen them during lockdown around how young people who can't attend school for a certain length of time can actually kind of attend virtually. That kind of thing was happening even before we were kind of moving to online learning. Then we got the more complicated uh, situations where young people might be seeming to either refuse to go to school or not want to go to school. And that can be for a variety of different reasons. You you picked up on the term truancy being maybe quite an antiquated term, but I'm currently writing a chapter around terminology in school attendance. I've just been reading an article by David Hain and colleagues, and they find nearly 50 different terms to kind of account for problematic attendance in schools. So there's lots of different terms and lots of different reasons. Sometimes they can be split in terms of emotional difficulties. So worry, anxiety, or emotional problems like depression that might be preventing a young person going to school, and then more behavioural reasons. So perhaps a child or young person choosing not to go to school or refusing to go to school because they prefer to be either somewhere else or doing something else rather than learning. And one of the things that, in in my experience, a lot of children who don't enjoy being in school, it'll because for some reason they find the learning very difficult and potentially something hasn't been picked up there. They find the classroom an extremely stressful experience and it it may be related to that as well. Definitely. Um, There's all kinds of triggers for uh, what can what can start something. I can remember a, a case in primary school where it was very, very unexpected, but then also when there's an attendance issue, you can kind of trace back and put in place some kind of post hoc observation type things to have a look at what might be the reason, what might be the issue. And hopefully you can take good lines of communication with young people and their parents in terms of understanding it. Sometimes it's very difficult for young people, particularly when they're primary school age, to kind of reflect on what the reasons might be and to kind of clearly explain what might be the issue and what might need to change if they're going to help a transition back into school. And Darren, given your very extensive knowledge on, say, for example, the terminology around school avoidance or whatever we want to call it, imagine you're a head teacher. Tell me what you think are sort of optimal ways of approaching that particular issue. So, for example, at the moment, a lot of schools have staff training sessions. They're concerned about these issues. They're concerned about children, potentially some children feeling anxious on return to school. Isn't it the case that 
a lot of preemptive work needs to take place in early identification, not wait. This, these aren't issues that wait to the first day of school when you wait to see how children come across or being reliant on what they tell you. So can we talk a little bit about sort of early identification of those issues prior to arriving into the school gate? Certainly what we want to be doing and what a lot of uh, head teachers and school staff will want to be doing is trying to put in place or gain an understanding of the kind of things that young people might be worrying about in school. And this would apply as much to kind of how schools were previously, whether it's barriers to learning or particular lessons or particular times of the school day or particular times of the school week, even particular times of the school term that might be challenging for one reason or the other. And then, of course, we need to think in terms of schools reopening and how schools are going to look different and feel different for children. And then you would, ho- you would hope and expect that a lot of preemptive work is done, or you would hope that schools are able to kind of put in place this kind of guidance and information for pupils and also their parents so they can come in as prepared as possible. This is what we were kind of saying some time ago, that there could be an issue in terms of attendance with children going back to school, having been out of school for six months. There might be kind of new difficulties. There might be more persistent non-attendance. But we're not going to find out kind of who's not attending at a 10% level if we if we wait that long to let it get to that level. You want to be doing something responsive early, but also preventive. And I think as as we would say for lots of different issues in school, kind of being prepared and having young people be as clear as possible in terms of what they can expect is going to reduce any of that anxiety or worry that they might have. And some of these kind of um, preemptive strikes, if you like, they don't have to be difficult, do they? You know, I'm always suggesting to schools, make a video, show them what the classroom looks like and where they're going to sit in it or reflecting, you know, video content that could reflect the amount of work and thought that the school has put into keeping children safe or how play is going to take place in the playground. So you can achieve a lot as a school with some very easy little ways of of reaching that parent-pupil audience. Yeah, I've I've heard of schools who have conducted kind of school visits, even if it's to kind of the main atrium part of their building rather than into classrooms so they can still socially distance and also talk to parents using Microsoft Teams or whatever kind of video software that people use and is accessible. And of course, it's not accessible to everybody, but just giving giving an idea of what school's going to be like, as best as schools know, because obviously it's changing day by day in terms of exactly what is going to be uh, expected of schools. But that kind of thing can be put in place. I think that's that's the conversation that I've had with a few teachers and I'm not, I'm not telling them anything that isn't already common sense or isn't already what they're putting in place. Getting children prepared for what they're going to be expecting day one and how school's going to be different if they've already been attending in the past is the, the critical thing to do. A common question, I'm sure you've been asked it hundreds of times as well from teachers or, or head teachers, is there a, a, a popular identification survey tool or anything that they can distribute to both pupils and parents to assess need? Um, now, I'm aware of a few little instruments and tools that are available 
you know, free to schools. But I can't, you know, I really want to ask you about the optimal ways that a school might actually put those identification, you know, processes in place. What's the best and easiest way of doing that? This is a, this is a big question. I want to I want to kind of stop myself kind of talking about free or kind of tools that schools might invest some wise money in in order to identify difficulties amongst students and kind of more just think holistically about kind of those channels of communication. So using pupil voice as a really important thing so that pupils can feed back in terms of what they're thinking, what they're worried about in school, what they would change, consulting with pupils, but also doing the same thing for parents. So having a more open open dialogue with pupils and parents can allow them to kind of say the more open things that might just be real tangible and possible things that they can change. If we're thinking about mental health more broadly, lots of schools will use what's called the strengths and difficulties questionnaire. That's quite a quick measure that often schools will use if they're wanting to identify some concerns. But of course, if something is thrown up by that, there obviously needs to be a process in terms of how they're going to use that information and services that they might be working with or interventions that they might have within school if they identify kind of an issue that they think they might want to uh, look into. But of course, as you suggest, and I know and believe like you, the bedrock relationship, the thing to really invest in is that relationship with parents, with carers, with pupils, because you know, there is such a, you know, that relationship with teachers and that sense of belongingness to the school environment is such a astonishingly positive asset to these young people, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking now of some Public Health England guidance from 2015 around putting in place a whole school social well-being kind of practices and just how tricky that is and how multifaceted it is. So what what they believe is really important if you're going to lead some change in the school around mental health and well-being is working with parents and that's active working with them, consulting with parents, finding out what they think the challenges are, how they can become more involved kind of in schools and in those lines of communication. But separate but also related to that is just the whole ethos and environment of the school kind of thinking about school culture and of course that's a very difficult thing to change very quickly that's right but it's just being uh, schools being conscious of how you know the word holistic comes up doesn't it these aren't things that you know there's an opportunity here for with with this kind of angst on, on school return to really overhaul the whole relationship between teachers and parents and and to really look at how as you say parental engagement not just parental involvement is sort of threaded through not just uh, you know the whole school in, in in multiple ways it's a commitment to that relationship isn't it yeah there's there's really a mix of opportunity and challenge in schools going back it's obviously not a clean slate because most pupils were attending six months ago but there's this opportunity to kind of reset and think about what what schools are expecting and that some of that change is forced in terms of how schools are going to be set up and guidance that they need to follow and how they're going to be prioritizing different aspects of learning and that presents an opportunity to 
make some changes if you're thinking at a kind of school ethos level. It's also a challenge in terms of schools who may have had it right six months ago and may have been doing very well in terms of how they kind of transition back into some of those values and beliefs and expectations that might have been there day in, day out, but they might have to do a little bit of work in terms of putting them back in place or reminding pupils and the whole school community in terms of what, what they stand for, what they believe in. Yeah, just sort of re, I love these words, just sort of reset and, and revisit, you know, the values, reminding everyone what they believe in, you know, what was working well before this kind of abrupt disruption to, to the normal sort of school journey. One of the things that I'm very interested in, you mentioned pupil voice and consultation and asking parents, and it's really about giving these pupils, many of whom have felt disempowered over the last four or five months a lot of it uh, the word that keeps coming back in my mind is agency and giving them a kind of a uh, giving them some power back in and a sort of a proactive um, opportunity to be proactive in, in in new school life post-September. Yeah and I think there's there's a real opportunity just to draw on this idea of power I think <clears throat> there's an opportunity there in terms of everybody's kind of in this together and there can be this real sense of community. I think lots of young people are going to go back to school a little bit anxious in terms of what's it going to be like? How is it going to be different? What am I allowed to do? What happens if I get something wrong? But teachers are also going to be feeling that too. They're going to have a little bit more ownership and knowledge in terms of what the rules, what the consequences are and be more responsible in terms of guiding with that. But they're gonna, they're gonna feel anxious too. It's gonna be new for them. So I think there is that opportunity of everybody is in it together. So therefore everybody's voice is important in terms of what's going well, what isn't going well, what doesn't make sense, what do we need a little bit more guidance about. Yeah, so bringing a lot of clarity and, and control, you know, there's things that we can control and that's very, it's an interesting component, isn't it, to mental toughness that you can think about what we can control, you know, and also thinking about that school community as a very cohesive unit is is a powerful way of supporting young people and staff's mental health. Yeah, and I think that's going to be important because obviously things things can and will change. We're recording just this morning where it's been announced that if there's a local lockdown, then pupils in secondary schools will be wearing face coverings in corridors and communal areas of the school. So that's just that's just changed today. That's right. And I think it's always about expectation setting, you know, and I think the, the word that, again, is in my mind from listening to you say that is flexibility. You know, we really, really need to remain flexible and able to adjust in our children, which they're well able to, to, to be adaptive. I, th- I think this is something that, looking back, may have surprised both lots of teachers and I'm sure lots of pupils themselves, looking back over the last for five months. I think it's surprised myself in kind of a different situation as to how adaptive we all can be when we're put into that situation. So I have I have teachers working on the PGCE program here who are more than willing to join us on Teams or Zoom 
to do a session with PGC trainees in the autumn term if they can fit it in around their variable school timetables because they've developed this kind of skill in terms of online education that they didn't have before and was rather forced into it at speed. And I think pupils themselves uh, are similar in terms of they've, they've adapted or had to adapt so much in terms of learning at home and adjusting not just around education, but in terms of friendships as well. And now they'll be readjusting as they return to school. And also beyond that, so many children and young people have been incredibly innovative during lockdown, you know, um, and I think that gets missed a little bit. It's a little silver lining in what has been a difficult period that they have had the freedom to innovate, become the people, often the children have become the the teachers at home helping their child, their parents get on Zoom or understand technology better. So they've been upskilled in other ways, haven't they? Even though there is a, some children have experienced a kind of a dent in their academic progress, often through no fault of their own. Oh yeah, not notwithstanding the difficulties in terms of access and indeed motivation, if we're learning from home, I think we do miss kind of these great successes in terms of the flexibility in learning and perhaps young people kind of coming to understand a little bit around what what I know teachers will kind of explain in terms of how relevant lots of what they're talking about, what what they're learning about is to everyday life, since they've been needing to apply that learning kind of at home with what's around them. Now, one of the things that I'm terribly interested in, and I know you are as well, is, is children and young people's aspirations. And I just want to sort of think about that because at the beginning of every school year I always you know set the ex set high but realistic expectations with my own children I tell them that I expect them to work hard at school that I'd expect them to try their best and I think it's important I think one of the things that has been lost in the the dialogue about school return is listen, you know, let's get get back to learning and let's remain aspirational for our children in the midst of this. Yeah, I think what, what I was uh, intending saying in response to the last question is we need to be adaptable. But the main reason that we need to when we're going back into school is the reason the reason we're going there is for learning and for the better learning opportunities. There's been quite a few different pieces of research that have suggested that while the online learning was kind of something that could be put in place and was accessible for the majority, but not all young people, the engagement with it would would not have been at the same level as it would be in school. So the opportunity to go back in and be face-to-face, even though it's going to feel different with peers and teachers, is going to be the critical thing that we do want to adjust to in order that, that so that learning can take place. Now, again, one of the, the, the things I worry about is that so many, rightly so, millions of parents have been so worn out and fed up and tired with, with sort of being the home teacher, if you like, the whole, doing the homeschooling, that they will absolutely, you know, they can't wait to pass the baton to the teachers in a way that, you know, they they just want to get, they just don't want to have that role anymore. And I really worry about that because notwithstanding, you know, parents have had some quite difficult experiences doing the homeschooling and I've heard lots of them over the summer, but that's not really the answer, is it? We, we need parents to maintain, 
you know, to engage consistently throughout the school year and work in alignment with teachers, don't we? We, we don't just want them to pass the bats on and, and have a big sigh of relief. You know, we, we need we need these groups of people to be working together for the benefit of children. Yeah, I'm going to sound a little bit like Sarah Jane Blakemore here where I talk about individual differences and it's going to apply to lots of what we've spoken about already, but there's going to be great differences in terms of how parents have taken to the real challenge of homeschooling and it's going to look very different depending on the age of the young person and indeed how they were doing in school and their their aspirations for that period of home learning. But I think just hearing you talk about it, I think it strikes me as this real opportunity in terms of parental engagement or kind of homeschool learning partnerships. Yes, that kind of balance in terms of both the setting and who's going to be facilitating the learning is going to change when young people return to school. But a little bit like my teachers who still want to hold on to the skills that they've developed in terms of Zoom and Microsoft Teams, I think there's going to be this opportunity in terms of kind of asking parents to help facilitate some of that learning at home, but also understanding some of the kind of pressures from both sides. So teachers will be a little bit more understanding in terms of the difficulties of facilitating an activity or making something happen or having access to resources, whereas parents will be able to put in place or kind of follow on from some of the support with learning that uh, they had to take on kind of throughout a school day. Now it will be hopefully less so in terms of home learning opportunities. And I think uh, I'd love to know if you agree that everyone has greater empathy, I think, for others. You know, we've all been in meetings where someone's toddler interrupts or you know, my friend is a is a lawyer and her five-year-old will come in multiple times during meetings, you know, but nobody feels cross about it. Everybody is very understanding of each other's circumstances at home, maybe slightly more than they would have been um, pre, pre the lockdown. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I've been, I have a three-year-old son and there's been meetings where whoever I'm talking to will have been able to see the top of his forehead. Um, <laughs> and he will bob up or he will wave his hand there was there was a group a group meeting so it's the kind where you turn off your cameras or you're not expected to have your camera on but he he used the potty in the background during that meeting (laughs) it's okay because I was on mute and uh, he he did a good job of it himself I think everybody has become very kind of empathetic and tolerant to it but also understanding a little bit in terms of the situation in which people work and I think Generally, we probably have a better understanding collectively of the responsibility and challenges of teaching and engaging young people with learning since that's had to be taken out of school. Absolutely. I mean, so many parents now appreciate it's actually very, the science of learning is very complex. It's not just sit down and do it. They just cannot believe how a teacher can manage a class of 30 or 32 children when, when, when they can hardly get their six-year-old to sit down and look at the paper. So they, there's a greater appreciation of teachers, I think. Oh, I think. I think definitely generally there's a sense of that. There's also these individual differences in terms of, I think it's been eye-opening for some parents and yeah. the kind of the feeling that you have when you've been you've played a part in terms of a young person's learning they didn't get it before but you've been able to explain it possibly for the fifth time in a slightly different way 
modeling it or using some kind of different example and you kind of you see it click that's a real powerful thing which most parents are going to be able to kind of take with them but uh, in terms of pgc recruitment we've got we've got a sense that i think more people uh, for the first time kind of thinking or oh, maybe i might like to be a teacher or this is potentially a very rewarding thing to do and some parents have had major breakthroughs with their children's learning children who potentially weren't really thriving in the school environment for whatever reason but have benefited hugely from being in a peaceful room with a parent or carer and and you know some parents have felt very confident as a you know in in terms of what they achieved together yeah i think it's it's really kind of put into focus uh, something that we and i know past guests of yours have spoken about in terms of the relationships being all important if there's going to be these kind of learning conversations and i think it's it's been heartening to hear lots of stories in terms of how lockdown has been really challenging and obviously there's been uh, negative aspects of it and a lot of worry but it has brought a lot of people together and connected lots of families now something the pivotal points between home and school i'd like to sort of go through them a little bit so for example i want to talk about homework because this is something that suddenly becomes very important again um, for in September. And there's lots of, you, as you and I know, there's a lot of mixed evidence out there as to its efficacy or whether or not it's, there's any point doing it in primary school. We've seen all the headlines. But I want to, I think homework gets a very bad name. And I want to talk to you both about the research around it and how the parent-teacher relationship can work better in this regard. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Homework's a real challenge. And when I when I talk about it, it's more from a secondary school point of view, as that's where I've been working with PGC trainees. And there's a, there's a lot of mixed research out there, but I tend to think about PGC trainees who have chosen to research aspects around homework and home learning as part of assignments um, for their PGC programme. And kind of what what they've explored and what they found about it. I think there is a real mix of beliefs in terms of what homework is and what it's for, and potentially teachers within the same school using it in quite different ways. And that sends kind of mixed messages to pupils in terms of how important homework is, what is it for, and why I'm doing it. So I think I think homework fits a little bit like how I think of parental engagement or having parents as partners in school learning. It's so much more about kind of the implementation of it rather than kind of what's what's the best way of doing homework or what's the best kind of homework, because we can have a conversation in terms of is it more effective for that homework to be the kind of research or preemptive kind of work that somebody might do before then going into school and learning more about it, building on those foundations? Or is the homework better if it's consolidating previous learning so it kind of sticks sticks there in the memory? And there's, there's pros and cons of both, but the really important thing is kind of how that homework is explained and what's done with it, what the consequences are. And if there is expected to be a little bit of parental involvement or if there is 
this expectation that parents would be getting involved or young people will talk to their parents about their homework and there's very good reasons for that. The explanation is clear. So I think it's there's everyone has a role to play here in, in making homework. I don't even like that word because it's so general. And as you say, homework can be of various quality and, you know, uh, be very inconsistent ac- across a school. So, but I think that it's important that teachers understand from a parent perspective that there's, you know, if you send home a paper, a Viking ship to be made out of paper mache on a weekday evening, that kind of homework without understanding its purpose, you know, that will impact on family life potentially in a negative way. Sometimes homework can frustrate the parent-teacher relationship, can't it? Oh, oh yeah, it's it's always those examples of primary school and uh, either needing to build a model or go out and source something from a shop in order to put something together or, or make something that is kind of the example of the real challenging kind of homework that frustrates parents because they're raising the question in terms of why why are we doing this? But I think that the if we look at the positives around homework, which I'd like parents to think about it from September onwards, that even if their child's at secondary school, parental engagement should not drop off a cliff because their child is suddenly in secondary school. And optimally, I think that homework, you, did, you never need to be an expert to, to sort of be there for your child but I think that and I'm sure you'd agree and I think the research supports this that if the homework leads to great quality conversations within family life it's beneficial if it if it acts as a springboard for ringing up grandpa and finding out what his experiences were in world war ii when you're doing it for your homework so I think parents should treat homework as a springboard for extended learning and thinking and chat and debate and discussion and they need to have confidence that they don't need to be the expert in a subject to to help their child to support their learning yeah it it takes me back to um, research findings around science of learning and discussing them with pgc trainees so trainee teachers um, and the advice from that in terms of how it really consolidates learning for pupils if they go away and have conversations with somebody who wasn't in the room about the learning that's taken place. And we talk about kind of how we can draw upon that as an aspect of homework. And that changes the feel of homework very much. So no longer is it, we didn't quite finish that activity, finish it off at home that places a lot of onus on the pupil to kind of explain the beginnings of the activity, what they did in the classroom, which can all be very beneficial and parents can get involved with finishing that off to setting up some kind of situation where pupils can go home and have the conversation with somebody else or ask the questions relevant to that, which is powerful, but looks like a different kind of involvement and looks like a different kind of homework if it's like explaining. And then you get that and a learning conversation happening, which, as you suggested, can be one of the more valuable things, far more valuable to be talking about what was what was your child learning at school today in that lesson? What was challenging about it? What do they now need to finish off rather than can we get this answer right? 
And I was reading, I'm sure you know a lot more about this than me, John Hattie's work on feedback yesterday, which is obviously aimed at teachers. And I, I was just reflecting on the fact that a lot of his research evidence around feedback, the kind of the positive affirmations you might give a student like, good girl, well done, like that stuff won't be particularly effective. But actually, when you bring that into the home environment, parental feedback is important and can can have a, an impact when a child is, is is behaving well and sitting down and focusing and showing commitment and engaging in the chat. I think parental feedback does really matter to, when a child is 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 enjoying their homework. Yeah, I think I think a couple of things are really important there, and I'm not sure if all schools kind of think about this on that level because I think it's a really good thing when schools are going a little bit beyond. The homework is going home and there's clear instructions for the pupil if they're going beyond that and explaining it in terms of how parents can support with homework or giving some uh giving a little bit of forewarning in terms of what the homework's going to be that's really good but i think i think there's a real opportunity in terms of promoting learning behaviors and reinforcing that because they are going to be the transferable things between school and home the kind of setup and the kind of thinking that a child or young person would be doing to kind of get their head around a problem is going to look the same at home in school and kind of talking out loud, thinking through a problem can be done at home with parents and can be really valuable and will help with, with that kind of learning. So I think I think that's important as well as kind of just praising the act of getting involved or getting stuck into the homework. I think there's a really important thing in terms of, I'm sure it happens across the board and we can all think examples of it where we ourselves as adults are learning from the young people around us and just making that clear that like we've learned something today or we had forgotten about it. As you say, those sort of attitudes towards learning are, are, are you know, established in school consolidated at home and I think that's what parents need to think about is you know what are we modeling are we modeling an enthusiasm for learning and and are we cultivating curiosity are we taking the baton off the teacher at the end of the day and saying tell me what you learned in school today wow that is exciting so there needs to be that kind of sense that you know we've got a, a, a positive home learning environment that contributes to how a child responds in school? Oh, d- definitely. I think just just picking up on some of the, the underlying things that transfer backwards and forwards from home to school and just recognising some of the challenges as well. I think there's an opportunity in terms of the one-to-one conversations that can happen, not just around homework, but around how was, you, how was your day at school? What was this lesson like or what was the what was the best bit of the day what was what was challenging about it what new thing did you learn today those kind of conversations but also getting at the challenges and getting at the thinking around it is really helpful not just to parents to understand it because they may be able to relay it back to school but to the young people themselves to have that kind of modeling it's kind of the metacognition kind of understanding how they're thinking about problems and issues and how they're how they're feeling in their learning so they're in in kind of the right place or understanding what their barriers might be so that they can then apply that 
And I think as you've said, metacognition, that's not something parents will be familiar with. But if we sort of translate that into parents speak, for example, it's it's an incredibly powerful way that you can interact with your child to encourage them to think about their thinking, to to reflect back on what worked for them, what didn't. You know, we can sort of scaffold those conversations as a parent. And that's that's powerful, isn't it? Oh, met- metacognition is really difficult to get your head around the first or probably even the 15th time that you come across it or come across definitions of it, because thinking about thinking is hard work, but you can structure it practically in terms of reflecting on kind of what was learning like, what was challenging about whatever it is that you did, what what was the moment when kind of the penny dropped. And then also thinking a little bit about self-regulation. So encouraging young people to kind of think about what was challenging to begin with or what was it that helped plan out that kind of activity or that piece of learning? When did kind of the attention drop off? What might they do next time that would be different? It's about kind of reflecting on learning, but kind of thinking about the process rather than just the outcome. And so many parents ask those questions intuitively, but may not have known the, you know, the fancy word of metacognition. It's the same for trainee teachers. They come into a session with me on metacognition and throw, throw a few definitions out there. And it sounds quite scary and quite academic talk. But then we're reassured that we're talking about kind of reflection and self-regulation, the kind of things that we're, we're doing day in, day out, and that perhaps more typically as adults and perhaps older children, we are doing in our heads regularly. We can recognize that kind of we are thinking about things, reflecting and taking a note of kind of what we might be doing different next time. But what can be really challenging for teachers, but for all of us supporting children is kind of having those conversations out loud and modeling it ourselves in terms of if we're looking over a piece of homework, we have to get our heads around it first. We have to read through the question and kind of think about what does it mean? What's the key thing? What do I have to draw upon that I've previously learned in order to apply it to kind of complete this activity? That's a challenging thing to kind of talk out loud and kind of model for children kind of how they might work through problems. One of the things that I think is hugely beneficial, I've never seen it done, but a a school or a teacher providing a video of how they actually ask these questions around learning to a child in their care. So parents often are very good at sort of when it's modeled to them, they can really, you know, replicate that at home. And I think that it's a shame in a way that it isn't sort of more of a focus of schools to kind of that they they say that they're doing this stuff at school, but parents, if, if they just have those sort of conversational prompts, they're they're quite, you know, soon they get quite confident in that approach and they understand very quickly what, what the teachers are trying to achieve in asking those fantastic questions that focus on the process of learning. Yeah, I think I think it has been a real challenge, but I wonder if there is this opportunity from having had to move to online learning and having to schools having to invest in things like Microsoft Teams or Zooms or their own kind of homework platform and sometimes putting in place videos or live sessions. 
I think in the past there's always been kind of this barrier around kind of videoing things in school. There's all kind of safeguarding implications around this and technology barriers as well. But I think from from having been through kind of the situation where we've needed to adjust to online learning, there might be more opportunities for videoed instructions. But I think just step-by-step guides are always going to be helpful and can be more accessible. Now, Darren, I know that you're heavily involved in sort of teacher training and education. And I used to work in a school of education, you know, as a researcher, observing all of that taking place. What is teacher training like these days? You know, do teacher trainees get access to the kind of the evidence base that that you and I are referring to? Do they get training around parental engagement or working with parents in general? Oh, very much, very much so. I obviously can't can't talk for other institutions. The the striking thing about teacher training that perhaps may be different if we were to go back maybe 15 or 20 years is how intertwined the theory and practice is. And I know that this is applicable whether we're talking about university-led teacher training like ours, and, and our model kind of front loads quite a lot of the university learning or what some people might refer to as the theory that's then applied in practice versus some more school-led modes where trainees are in school for the vast majority of the year um, and any of the kind of more theoretical stuff might be kind of wrapped around the practice that's always happening in school. That kind of theory practice uh, relationship is the key thing. It would never be enough in teacher training to just experience parental engagement. So to just be attending and taking a role in parents evening or making phone calls home that wouldn't be enough to kind of evidence teacher standards, but neither would it be enough to say, take a look at Education Endowment Foundation guidance reports about parental engagement to kind of think about, here are some strategies that I would put in practice if I had the need. There's also kind of that need to put it into practice, but also reflect on how it went and how it fits in with yourself as a teacher, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that there's yeah a great deal of in- emphasis on on the evidence base and reflection and continual CPD, I suppose, as well. Yeah, I think they, they can be a challenge in terms of trainees getting really involved in kind of the research and the academic literature and kind of weighing up the challenges in terms of how different aspects of teaching might need to take place and then going out into schools and kind of I think learning that there needs to be a certain amount of adjustment in terms of what I might have read in a research paper isn't necessarily necessarily going to be the thing that I can implement in this placement because I'm inheriting classes that another teacher has taught I don't want to reinvent the wheel that's going to be disruptive for pupils I need to kind of blend in some of the ideas and some of the practices that I need to be evidencing and trying out into kind of existing situations and environments. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and um, in terms, tell us a little bit about lovely, exciting projects or things that you're thinking about at the moment or working on or reading about. What's occupying your mind as a researcher at the moment? At the, at the moment, I'm meant to be writing this chapter on terminology around school attendance. So I'll, I'll say say a little bit about that. I think when when a colleague first 
first said to me that so she was interested in links between school attendance and emotional disorder so the idea that if a young person wasn't attending school as much or at a certain level that that might impact on their emotional difficulties but also if a young person had emotional difficulties that might mean they don't attend school as much and her comment to me and I was kind of coming at this supervising from the educational side was this is really challenging because there's so many terms for kind of problematic attendance in school it's really difficult kind of unpicking the links to emotional difficulties because you have to understand all these terms and I think I just I chalked it up to another one of these academic things where people define terms in different ways and there's always going to be a certain amount of different definitions to get our heads around but I think having come to read some of the literature around it, I think it is really important. So that article I mentioned earlier on by David Hayne, they have nearly 50 terms for problematic attendance in school. Wow. And that's really, really difficult because if we're thinking more of the practical side, we want to kind of understand what is it that we should be looking out for? How should we be referring to it in a non-stigmatizing, non-judgmental way? and then putting something into practice. So if we take the example of, uh, let's say we're, we're talking to a head at a school and they're kind of talking about kind of attendance at, at the school level. So they're kind of talking generally about how it is and how they might be taking steps in terms of unauthorized absence. And they might be referring to a couple of individuals who are regularly not in school. So the head kind of refers to Mary, she's school phobic. So then that kind of brings to mind, oh, Mary seems to have this kind of phobia or anxiety or worry about coming to school. We would probably expect there to be some kind of treatment, some kind of adjustment that we could be, be putting in place so that she can perhaps overcome that phobia or so that this school can be more appropriate for her or can take steps to gradually bring her back in, or maybe some other different school might be appropriate for her if she really cannot attend. So that's Mary. She's school phobic. Billy is a truant. That kind of brings to mind, oh, Billy doesn't want to come to school. Billy chooses not to come to school. His parents probably don't know. They drop him off or he gets on the bus, but he doesn't turn up. He's somewhere doing something else. And I think this is really important because there is some literature that will kind of use these two terms interchangeably. Certainly terms like school refusal and truant, there's research out there that suggests that if teachers are thinking about school refusal, they tend to think of it more as an emotional response, a young person not being able to attend school and it being difficult for them versus truancy being more behavioral or antisocial. And then that becomes really important if we're going to think about non-attendance in terms of which, which term do we use and what's the right term and also not to be judgmental in terms of when it gets difficult. Uh, and then something else that I'll be chewing over as part of this chapter that I really need to get to writing is where <laughs> do we set the line in terms of where attendance becomes problematic because often it's quite arbitrary different researchers have kind of suggested different cut points. We're hoping to 
get involved or my colleague Katie Finning will be hoping to carry out some research in the future that actually kind of looks at where should that cut point for persistent non-attendance be? Is there a good point at which to say if non-attendance gets to this level, that might be where you ought to take some action or where we ought to think of it as problematic? Because at the moment, there's just arguments in terms of, well, more than 1% is still going to have an effect on learning and could signify that there's ongoing difficulties. So that's when we should take action. In in England, it's 10% is persistent non-attendance, but it used to be 15%. And before that, it used to be 20%. And these obviously sound like quite neat numbers. And presumably, there, there are going to be some sort of hybrid solutions, because now we know, as felt like some children can do a little bit of remote learning at, at home, come in in the afternoon. You know, it's going to look different, the solution in every school, isn't it? It's going to look different for whoever the individual is. So I think that's that's kind of the key thing and why we can perhaps understand the different terminology. If there's these 50 terms that could refer to the different kinds of attendance, some of these terms just kind of in their label, there's things like parental endorsed absence or parental encouraged absence so they will kind of pick up that sometimes what is referred to as school withdrawal will kind of it will have permission Mm. whereas sometimes school refusal will be it's more the young person themselves I think the why we have those terms is because there's so many individual differences in terms of what exactly might be challenging or the situation but using those terms if we're just referring to somebody who hmm they're not attending as much as they previously did. I wonder what the issue is here. I think we have to be careful in terms of how we're how we using that because quite often it needs a bit of investigation. My kind of anecdotal experience in schools is that it can be really, really difficult to get your head around why somebody doesn't want to attend school at that current point in time. And it can be changeable and it can happen very quickly. And we can't wait, can't wait too long before we consider it to be a problem. But it can take quite a bit of time and quite a bit of investigation to work out kind of exactly what might be a way forward, what would actually help reintegrate somebody to school. And it tends to be kind of gentle steps back in, as you've suggested. And Darren, when is your chapter out on that particular topic, which I'm very interested in? And also, is there particular guidance that schools that you think is really uh, worth a head teacher or a teacher listening to that you think is then worth reading? Is there anything in particular you would pinpoint on on this particular topic? So this is where I this is where I need to come clean. This this chapter shouldn't be shouldn't be too distant from kind of getting getting published because it's in a book that I'm editing with Katie Finning, who I mentioned, and with Tamsin Ford, who was a previous guest on the podcast. It's all about mental health and attendance. And my chapter talking about terminology and attendance is the last one that we're waiting for because we're just waiting for me to write it. I've been happily editing other people's chapters and saying, oh, I'll get I'll get I'll get to my one. Um, and now re- now really is the time for me to get to it. I think sometime in the autumn, we're hoping to finalize all the chapters. But obviously, it takes a little while to get a book ready to be published. But I think it will be sometime in 2021. In terms of practical guidance, I would point people towards work by David Hain. And I think from him, 
you would probably come to some of the kind of key voices around school attendance. And what, what people could also have a look at is there's an organisation called INSA, and I think David is kind of either the president or kind of responsible for putting this organisation together. It's, I think it stands for International Network on School Attendance. I think they only came into being probably in 2019 and had their first conference in Norway. But everybody who's a member of that isn't just necessarily an academic interested in school attendance. They're kind of practically working either in or with schools in terms Fantastic. of making a, dif making a difference around school attendance. I've not looked at their website for some time, but I know that they had kind of resources out there. Thank you so much, Darren. We know you have to get on with reading that chapter because I can't wait to buy that book. So we're going to let you go after an hour of chatting. There's always plenty more to talk about, but thank you so much for joining us on the Get a Grip podcast. No problem at all, Cathy. It was great to talk to you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my monthly podcast series, Get a Grip, where I try and unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? Where do we draw the line when it comes to screen time? Do children need both parents? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts will get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main speakers in this area. I've asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Darren Moore is Senior Lecturer at the University of Exeter's Graduate School of Education, where he's taught since 2008. Before starting a lectureship in 2017, he taught psychology and researched in a further education college and also worked as a researcher at the University of Exeter Medical School on projects related to child and adolescent mental health. His work focuses on school mental health spanning areas including the impact of mental ill health on school attendance and outcomes, how schools can identify and treat mental health difficulties, teachers' mental health and well-being, well-being policies in schools. He's also interested in educational transitions, parental engagement in learning and behaviour in schools, and is part of ReachWell, a group of UK academics concerned about the lack of focus on the needs of young people during the pandemic and who seek to redress the imbalance with scientific evidence. Welcome, Darren. How are you? I'm very well, Cathy. Good to talk to you. One of the challenges when I was researching this interview is that I want to talk to you about everything because all of your research interests are so pertinent at the moment. I know. And also uh, things are changing day by day. So what we might be talking about today could well change tomorrow. And one of the things, for example, in the press today is yep. about 
psychiatrists saying, please, please, please do not find children who are truanting from school, a very old fashioned word or avoiding school, because there seems to be an anticipation in the mental health community that we may see a spike in school avoidance, in school refusal. Can you just sort of give me, you know, when you heard that headline today, how did you respond? So quite a while back now, it was it was back in March when we were thinking about what was the impact of school closures going to be? And I think from the research that colleagues and I have done around school attendance and emotional mental health, one of the things that we were consciously aware of is just what could be a difficulty returning to school for those young people who uh, might have some emotional difficulties, particularly if they're going to have been out of school for six months and are then returning to a school that might not be, of course, quite as quite as they remember it and might be worried about that. So it's something that's been on our on our mind for some time and I think it's it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult and we're going to need to see exactly what attendance looks like, not just on day one and not just week one, but kind of over over the medium term as schools are kind of readjusting to what happens and hopefully getting back to learning, which is of course the most important thing. And pre-COVID, I know sort of 13% of children, I think, nationally are persistently absent from school in, in quote, normal, unquote, times. So yeah. what are the general reasons, before we move on to children actually attending school and transitioning to senior school, what are the reasons why children in general may not want to go into that school building? So if we're, if we're talking about persistent school non-attendance, so we're, we're looking at a government line that's around 10% of sessions, so kind of mornings or afternoons over what would be a whole term or over the whole year, if they're measuring it for that length of time. So we're tending not to think about holidays that could be taken in term time. We're not thinking about very temporary illnesses. We're talking about something over a longer length of time that would account for 10% of the time that young people should be in school. So we're, lo- we're looking at a range of things. Sometimes it's going to be physical illness, and that could be an ongoing thing. So that's predictable. And we would hope that schools would be working with young people, their parents, uh, clinicians, to put in place learning around what could be predictable absences because of time in hospital, or just time when they might not be well enough to attend school. Um, we've seen some interventions and seen them during lockdown around how young people who can't attend school for a certain length of time can actually kind of attend virtually. That kind of thing was happening even before we were kind of moving to online learning. Then we got the more complicated uh, situations where young people might be seeming to either refuse to go to school or not want to go to school. And that can be for a variety of different reasons. You you picked up on the term truancy being maybe quite an antiquated term, but I'm currently writing a chapter around terminology in school attendance. I've just been reading an article by David Hain and colleagues, and they find nearly 50 different terms to kind of account for problematic attendance in schools. So there's lots of different terms and lots of different reasons. Sometimes they can be split in terms of emotional difficulties. So worry, anxiety, or emotional problems like depression that might be preventing a young person going to school, and then more behavioural reasons. So perhaps a child or young person choosing not to go to school or refusing to go to school. 
because they prefer to be either somewhere else or doing something else rather than learning. And one of the things that, in, in my experience, a lot of children who don't enjoy being in school, it'll because for some reason they find the learning very difficult and potentially something hasn't been picked up there. They find the classroom an extremely stressful experience and it, it may be related to that as well. Definitely. Um, there's all kinds of triggers for uh, what can what can start something. I can remember a, a case in primary school where it was very very unexpected but then also when there's an attendance issue you can kind of trace back and put in place some kind of post hoc observation type things to have a look at what might be the reason what might be the issue and hopefully you can take good lines of communication with young people and their parents in terms of understanding it sometimes it's very difficult for young people particularly when they're primary school age to kind of reflect on what the reasons might be and to kind of clearly explain what might be the issue and what might need to change if they're going to help a transition back into school. And Darren, given your very extensive knowledge on, say, for example, the terminology around school avoidance or whatever we want to call it, imagine you're a head teacher. Tell me what you think are sort of optimal ways of approaching that particular issue. So, for example, at the moment, a lot of schools have staff training sessions. They're concerned about these issues. They're concerned about children, potentially some children feeling anxious on return to school. Isn't it the case that a lot of preemptive work needs to take place in early identification, not wait? This, these aren't issues that wait to the first day of school when you wait to see how children come across or being reliant on what they tell you. So can we talk a little bit about sort of early identification of those issues prior to arriving into the school gate? Certainly what we want to be doing and what a lot of uh, head teachers and school staff will want to be doing is trying to put in place or gain an understanding of the kind of things that young people might be worrying about in school. And this would apply as much to kind of how schools were previously, whether it's barriers to learning or particular lessons or particular times of the school day or particular times of the school week, even particular times of the school term that might be challenging for one reason or the other. And then, of course, we need to think in terms of schools reopening and how schools are going to look different and feel different for children. And then you would, you would hope and expect that a lot of preemptive work is done, or you would hope that schools are able to kind of put in place this kind of guidance and information for pupils and also their parents so they can come in as prepared as possible. This is what we were kind of saying some time ago, that there could be an issue in terms of attendance with children going back to school, having been out of school for six months. There might be kind of new difficulties. There might be more persistent non-attendance. But we're not going to find out kind of who's not attending at a 10% level if we, if we wait that long to let it get to that level. You want to be doing something responsive early, but also preventive. And I think... As, as we would say for lots of different issues in school, kind of being prepared and having young people be as clear as possible in terms of what they can expect is going to reduce any of that anxiety or worry that they might have. 
And some of these kind of um, preemptive strikes, if you like, they don't have to be difficult, do they? You know, I'm always suggesting to schools, make a video, show them what the classroom looks like and where they're going to sit in it or reflecting, you know, video content that could reflect the amount of work and thought that the school has put into keeping children safe or how play is going to take place in the playground. So you can achieve a lot as a school with some very easy little ways of, of reaching that parent-pupil audience. Yeah, I've, I've heard of schools who have conducted kind of school visits, even if it's to kind of the main atrium part of their building rather than into classrooms so they can still socially distance and also talk to parents using Microsoft Teams or whatever kind of video software that people use and is accessible. And of course, it's not accessible to everybody, but just giving giving an idea of what school's going to be like, as best as schools know, because obviously it's changing day by day in terms of exactly what is going to be uh, expected of schools, but that kind of thing can be put in place. I think that's that's the conversation that I've had with a few teachers and I'm not, I'm not telling them anything that isn't already common sense or isn't already what they're putting in place. Getting children prepared for what they're going to be expecting day one and how schools can be different if they've already been attending in the past is the, the critical thing to do. A common question, I'm sure you've been asked it hundreds of times as well from teachers or, or head teachers, is there a, a, a popular identification survey tool or anything that they can distribute to both pupils and parents to assess need? Um, now, I'm aware of a few little instruments and tools that are available you know, free to schools, but I can't, you know, I really want to ask you about the optimal ways that a school might actually put those identification, you know, processes in place. What's the best and easiest way of doing that? This is a a big question. I want to, I want to kind of stop myself kind of talking about free or kind of tools that schools might invest some wise money in, in order to identify difficulties amongst students and kind of more just think holistically about kind of those channels of communication so using pupil voice as a really important thing so that pupils can feed back in terms of what they're thinking what they're worried about in school what they would change consulting with pupils but also doing the same thing for parents so having a more open open dialogue with pupils and parents can allow them to kind of say the more open things that might just be real tangible and possible things that they can change. If we're thinking about mental health more broadly, lots of schools will use what's called the strengths and difficulties questionnaire. That's quite a quick measure that often schools will use if they're wanting to identify some concerns. But of course, if something is thrown up by that, there obviously needs to be a process in terms of how they're going to use that information and services that they might be working with or interventions that they might have within school if they identify kind of an issue that they think they might want to uh, look into. But of course, as you suggest, and I know and believe like you, the bedrock relationship, the thing to really invest in is that relationship with parents, with carers, with pupils, because you know there is such a, you know, that relationship with teachers and that sense of belongingness to the school environment is such a astonishingly positive asset to these young people, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking now of some Public Health England guidance from 2015 around putting in place a whole school social well-being kind of practices. 
and just how tricky that is and how multifaceted it is. So what what they believe is really important if you're going to lead some change in the school around mental health and well-being is working with parents and that's active working with them, consulting with parents, finding out what they think the challenges are, how they can become more involved kind of in schools and in those lines of communication. But separate but also related to that is just the whole ethos and environment of the school kind of thinking about school culture and of course that's a very difficult thing to change very quickly that's right but I suppose it's just being uh, um, schools being conscious of how you know the word holistic comes up doesn't it these aren't things that you know there's an opportunity here for with with this kind of angst on, on school return to really overhaul the whole relationship between teachers and parents and and to really look at how as you say parental engagement not just parental involvement is sort of threaded through not just uh, you know the whole school in, in in multiple ways it's a commitment to that relationship isn't it yeah there's there's really a mix of opportunity and challenge in schools going back it's obviously not a clean slate because most pupils were attending 6 months ago but there's this opportunity to kind of reset and think about what what schools are expecting and that some of that change is forced in terms of how schools are going to be set up and guidance that they need to follow and how they're going to be prioritizing different aspects of learning and that presents an opportunity to make some changes if you're thinking at a kind of school ethos level it's also a challenge in terms of schools who may have had it right six months ago and may have been doing very well in terms of how they kind of transition back into some of those values and beliefs and expectations that might have been there day in, day out, but they might have to do a little bit of work in terms of putting them back in place or reminding pupils and the whole school community in terms of what, what they stand for, what they believe in. Yeah, just sort of re, I love these words, just sort of reset and, and revisit, you know, the values, reminding everyone what they believe in, you know, what was working well before this kind of abrupt disruption to to the normal sort of school journey one of the things that I'm very interested in you mentioned pupil voice and consultation and asking parents and it's really about giving these pupils many of whom have felt disempowered over the last four or five months a lot of it uh, the word that keeps coming back in my mind is agency and giving them a kind of a uh, giving them some power back in and a sort of a proactive um, opportunity to be proactive in, in in new school life post September. Yeah, and I think there's there's a real opportunity just to draw on this idea of power. I think <clears throat> there's an opportunity there in terms of everybody's kind of in this together, and there can be this real sense of community. I think lots of young people are going to go back to school a little bit anxious in terms of what's it going to be like? How is it going to be different? What am I allowed to do? What happens if I get something wrong? But teachers are also going to be feeling that too. They're going to have a little bit more ownership and knowledge in terms of what the rules, what the consequences are, and be more responsible in terms of guiding with that. But they're going to, they're going to feel anxious too. It's going to be new for them. So I think there is that opportunity of everybody is in it together. So therefore, everybody's voice is important in terms of what's going well, 
what isn't going well, what doesn't make sense, what do we need a little bit more guidance about? Yeah, so bringing a lot of clarity and, and control, you know, there's things that we can control and that's very, it's an interesting component, isn't it, to mental toughness that you can think about what we can control, you know, and also thinking about that school community as a very cohesive unit is, is a powerful way of supporting young people and staff's mental health. Yeah, and I think that's going to be important because obviously things, things can and will change. We're recording just this morning where it's been announced that if there's a local lockdown, then pupils in secondary schools will be wearing face coverings in corridors and communal areas of the school. So that's just that's just changed today. That's right. And I think it's always about expectation setting, you know, and I think the, the word that, again, is in my mind from listening to you say that is flexibility. You know, we really, really need to remain flexible and able to adjust in our children, which they're well able to, to, to be adaptive. I, th- I think this is something that, looking back, may have surprised both lots of teachers and I'm sure lots of pupils themselves, looking back over the last for five months. I think it's surprised myself in kind of a different situation as to how adaptive we all can be when we're put into that situation. So I have I have teachers working on the PGCE program here who are more than willing to join us on Teams or Zoom to do a session with PGCE trainees in the autumn term if they can fit in around their variable school timetables because they've developed this kind of skill in terms of online education that they didn't have before and was rather forced into it at speed. And I think pupils themselves uh, are similar in terms of they've they've adapted or had to adapt so much in terms of learning at home and adjusting, not just around education, but in terms of friendships as well. And now they'll be readjusting as they return to school. And also beyond that, so many children and young people have been incredibly innovative during lockdown, you know, um, and I think that gets missed a little bit. It's a little silver lining in what has been a difficult period that they have had the freedom to innovate, become the people, often the children have become the the teachers at home helping their child, their parents get on Zoom or understand technology better. So they've been upskilled in other ways, haven't they? Even though there is a, some children have experienced a kind of a dent in their academic progress, often through no fault of their own. Oh yeah, not notwithstanding the difficulties in terms of access and indeed motivation, if we're learning from home, I think we do miss kind of these great successes in terms of the flexibility in learning and perhaps young people kind of coming to understand a little bit around what what I know teachers will kind of explain in terms of how relevant lots of what they're talking about, what what they're learning about is to everyday life, since they've been needing to apply that learning kind of at home with what's around them. Now, one of the things that I'm terribly interested in, and I know you are as well, is, is children and young people's aspirations. And I just want to sort of think about that because at the beginning of every school year I always you know set the ex set high but realistic expectations with my own children I tell them that I expect them to work hard at school that I'd expect them to try their best and I think it's important I think one of the things that has been lost in the the dialogue about school return is 
listen, you know, let's get get back to learning and let's remain aspirational for our children in the midst of this. Yeah, I think what, what I was uh, intending saying in response to the last question is we need to be adaptable. But the main reason that we need to when we're going back into school is the reason the reason we're going there is for learning and for the better learning opportunities. There's been quite a few different pieces of research that have suggested that while the online learning was kind of something that could be put in place and was accessible for the majority, but not all young people, the engagement with it wouldn't, would not have been at the same level as it would be in school. So the opportunity to go back in and be face-to-face, even though it's going to feel different with peers and teachers, is going to be the critical thing that we do want to adjust to in order that, that so that learning can take place. Now, again, one of the, the, the things I worry about is that so many, rightly so, millions of parents have been so worn out and fed up and tired with, with sort of being the home teacher, if you like, the whole doing the homeschooling, that they will absolutely, you know, they can't wait to pass the baton to the teachers in a way that, you know, they, they just want to get, they just don't want to have that role anymore. And I really worry about that because notwithstanding, you know, parents have had some quite difficult experiences doing the homeschooling and I've heard lots of them over the summer, but that's not really the answer, is it? We, we need parents to maintain, you know, to engage consistently throughout the school year and work in alignment with teachers, don't we? We, we don't just want them to pass the bat on and, and have a big sigh of relief. You know, we, we, need, we need these groups of people to be working together for the benefit of children. Yeah, I'm going to sound a little bit like Sarah Jane Blakemore here where I talk about individual differences and it's going to apply to lots of what we've spoken about already, but there's going to be great differences in terms of how parents have taken to the real challenge of homeschooling and it's going to look very different depending on the age of the young person and indeed how they were doing in school and their their aspirations for that period of home learning. But I think just hearing you talk about it, I think strikes me as this real opportunity in terms of parental engagement or kind of homeschool learning partnerships. Yes, that kind of balance in terms of both the setting and who's going to be facilitating the learning is going to change when young people return to school. But a little bit like my teachers who still want to hold on to the skills that they've developed in terms of Zoom and Microsoft Teams, I think there's going to be this opportunity in terms of kind of asking parents to help facilitate some of that learning at home, but also understanding some of the kind of pressures from both sides. So teachers will be a little bit more understanding in terms of the difficulties of facilitating an activity or making something happen or having access to resources, whereas parents will be able to put in place or kind of follow on from some of the support with learning that uh, they had to take on kind of throughout a school day. Now it will be hopefully less so in terms of home learning opportunities. And I think uh, I'd love to know if you agree that everyone has greater empathy, I think, for others. You know, we've all been in meetings where someone's toddler interrupts or, you know, my friend is a is a lawyer and her five-year-old will come in multiple times during meetings, you know, but nobody feels cross about it. Everybody is very understanding of each other's circumstances at home, maybe slightly more than they would have been um, pre, pre the lockdown. Oh, yeah, I, th- I think so. I 
been I have a three-year-old son and there's been meetings where whoever I'm talking to will have been able to see the top of his forehead (laughs) he will bob up or he will wave his hand there was there was a group a group meeting so it's the kind where you turn off your cameras or you're not expected to have your camera on but he he used the potty in the background during that meeting it's okay okay because I was on mute and uh, he he did a good job of it himself I think everybody has become very kind of empathetic and tolerant to it but also understanding a little bit in terms of the situation in which people work and I think generally we probably have a better understanding collectively of the responsibility and challenges of teaching and engaging young people with learning since that's had to be taken out of school. Absolutely. I mean, so many parents now appreciate it's actually very, the science of learning is very complex. It's not just sit down and do it. They just cannot believe how a teacher can manage a class of 30 or 32 children when when, when they can hardly get their six-year-old to sit down and look at the paper. So there's a greater appreciation of teachers, I think. Oh, I think I think definitely generally there's a sense of that. There's also these individual differences in terms of I think it's been eye opening for some parents and yeah. the kind of the feeling that you have when you've been you've played a part in terms of a young person's learning. They didn't get it before, but you've been able to explain it possibly for the fifth time in a slightly different way, modeling it or using some kind of different example. And you kind of you see it click. That's a real powerful thing which most parents are going to be able to kind of take with them. But uh, in terms of PGC recruitment, we've got we've got a sense that I think more people are for the first time kind of thinking, oh, maybe I might like to be a teacher or this is potentially a very rewarding thing to do. And some parents have had major breakthroughs with their children's learning, children who potentially weren't really thriving in the school environment for whatever reason, but have benefited hugely from being in a peaceful room with a parent or carer. And, and you know, some parents have felt very confident as a, you know, in, in terms of what they achieved together. Yeah, I think it's, it's really kind of put into focus uh, something that we and I know past guests of yours have spoken about in terms of the relationships being all important if there's going to be these kind of learning conversations and I think it's it's been heartening to hear lots of stories in terms of how lockdown has been really challenging and obviously there's been uh, negative aspects of it and a lot of worry but it has brought a lot of people together and connected lots of families Now, something, the pivotal points between home and school, I'd like to sort of go through them a little bit. So, for example, I want to talk about homework because this is something that suddenly becomes very important again um, in September. And there's lots of, you, as you and I know, there's a lot of mixed evidence out there as to its efficacy or whether or not there's any point doing it in primary school. We've seen all the headlines But I want to, I think homework gets a very bad name and I want to talk to you both about the research around it and how the parent-teacher relationship can work better in this regard. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Homework's a real challenge and when when I talk about it, it's more from a secondary school point of view as that's where I've been working with PGC trainees and there's a, there's a lot of mixed research out there, but I tend to think about PGC trainees who have chosen to research 
aspects around homework and home learning as part of assignments um, for their PGC programme and kind of what, what they've explored and what they found about it. I think there is a real mix of beliefs in terms of what homework is and what it's for and potentially teachers within the same school using it in quite different ways and that sends kind of mixed messages to pupils in terms of how important homework is, what is it for and why I'm doing it. So I think I think homework fits a little bit like how I think of parental engagement or having parents as partners in school learning. It's so much more about kind of the implementation of it rather than kind of what's what's the best way of doing homework or what's the best kind of homework because we can have a conversation in terms of is it more effective for that homework to be the kind of research or preemptive kind of work that somebody might do before then going into school and learning more about it building on those foundations or is the homework better if it's consolidating previous learning so it kind of sticks sticks there in the memory and there's there's pros and cons of both but the really important thing is kind of how that homework is explained and what's done with it what the consequences are and if there is expected to be a little bit of parental involvement or if there is this expectation that parents would be getting involved or young people will talk to their parents about their homework and there's very good reasons for that the explanation is clear so I think it's there's everyone has a role to play here in in making homework. I don't even like that word because it's so general and as you say homework can be of various quality and you know uh, be very inconsistent ac- across a school. So but I think that it's important that teachers understand from a parent perspective that there's you know if you send home a paper, a viking ship to be made out of paper mache on a weekday evening that kind of homework without understanding its purpose, you know, that will impact on family life potentially in a negative way. Sometimes homework can frustrate the parent-teacher relationship, can't it? Oh, oh yeah, it's it's always those examples of primary school and uh, either needing to build a model or go out and source something from a shop in order to put something together or or make something that is kind of the example of the real challenging kind of homework that frustrates parents because they're raising the question in terms of why why are we doing this but i think that the if we look at the positives around homework which i'd like parents to think about it from september onwards that even if their child's at secondary school parental engagement should not drop off a cliff because their child is suddenly in secondary school and optimally i think that homework you did you never need to be an expert to, to sort of be there for your child but I think that and I'm sure you'd agree and I think the research supports this that if the homework leads to great quality conversations within family life it's beneficial if it if it acts as a springboard for ringing up grandpa and finding out what his experiences were in world war ii when you're doing it for your homework so I think parents should treat homework as a springboard for extended learning and thinking and chat and debate and discussion and they need to have confidence that they don't need to be the expert in a subject to to help their child to support their learning 
yeah, it, it takes me back to um, research findings around science of learning and discussing them with PGC trainees, so trainee teachers, um, and the advice from that in terms of how it really consolidates learning for pupils if they go away and have conversations with somebody who wasn't in the room about the learning that's taken place. And we talk about kind of how we can draw upon that as an aspect of homework. And that changes the feel of homework very much. So no longer is it, we didn't quite finish that activity, finish it off at home. That places a lot of onus on the pupil to kind of explain the beginnings of the activity, what they did in the classroom, which can all be very beneficial and parents can get involved with finishing that off to setting up some kind of situation where pupils can go home and have the conversation with somebody else or ask the questions relevant to that, which is powerful, but looks like a different kind of involvement. It looks like a different kind of homework if it's like explaining. And then you get that kind of learning conversation happening, which, as you suggested, can be one of the more valuable things, far more valuable to be talking about what was, what was your child learning at school today in that lesson? What was challenging about it? What do they now need to finish off rather than can we get this answer right? And I was reading, I'm sure you know a lot more about this than me, John Hattie's work on feedback yesterday, which is obviously aimed at teachers. And I, I was just reflecting on the fact that a lot of his research evidence around feedback, the kind of the positive affirmations you might give a student like, good girl, well done, like that stuff won't be particularly effective. But actually, when you bring that into the home environment, parental feedback is important and can can have a, an impact when a child is, is is behaving well and sitting down and focusing and showing commitment and engaging in the chat. I think parental feedback does really matter to, when a child is 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 enjoying their homework. Yeah, I think I think a couple of things are really important there, and I'm not sure if all schools kind of think about this on that level because I think it's a really good thing when schools are going a little bit beyond the homework is going home and there's clear instructions for the pupil if they're going beyond that and explaining it in terms of how parents can support with homework or giving some uh giving a little bit of forewarning in terms of what the homework's going to be that's really good but i think i think there's a real opportunity in terms of promoting learning behaviors and reinforcing that because they are going to be the transferable things between school and home the kind of setup and the kind of thinking that a child or young person would be doing to kind of get their head around a problem is going to look the same at home and school and kind of talking out loud, thinking through a problem can be done at home with parents and can be really valuable and will help with, with that kind of learning. So I think I think that's important as well as kind of just praising the act of getting involved or getting stuck into the homework. I think there's a really important thing in terms of, I'm sure it happens across the board and we can all think examples of it where we ourselves as adults are learning from the young people around us and just making that clear that like we've learned something today or we had forgotten about it. As you say, those sort of attitudes towards learning are, are, are you know, 
established in school, consolidated at home. And I think that's what parents need to think about is, you know, what are we modeling? Are we modeling an enthusiasm for learning? And, and are we cultivating curiosity? Are we taking the baton off the teacher at the end of the day and saying, tell me what you learned in school today? Wow, that is exciting. So there needs to be that kind of sense that, you know, we've got a, a, a positive home learning environment that contributes to how a child responds in school? Oh, d- definitely. I think just just picking up on some of the, the underlying things that transfer backwards and forwards from home to school and just recognising some of the challenges as well. I think there's an opportunity in terms of the one-to-one conversations that can happen, not just around homework, but around how was you, how was your day at school? What was this lesson like or what was the what was the best bit of the day what was what was challenging about it what new thing did you learn today those kind of conversations but also getting at the challenges and getting at the thinking around it is really helpful not just to parents to understand it because they may be able to relay it back to school but to the young people themselves to have that kind of modeling it's kind of the metacognition kind of understanding how they're thinking about problems and issues and how they're how they're feeling in their learning so they're in in kind of the right place or understanding what their barriers might be so that they can then apply that and i think as you've said metacognition that's not something parents will be familiar with but if we sort of translate that into parents speak for example it's it's an incredibly powerful way that you can interact with your child to encourage them to think about their thinking, to to reflect back on what worked for them, what didn't. You know, we can sort of scaffold those conversations as a parent, and that's that's powerful, isn't it? Oh, met- metacognition is really difficult to get your head around the first or probably even the 15th time that you come across it or come across definitions of it, because thinking about thinking is hard work, but you can structure it practically in terms of reflecting on kind of what was learning like, what was challenging about whatever it is that you did, what what was the moment when kind of the penny dropped. And then also thinking a little bit about self-regulation. So encouraging young people to kind of think about what was challenging to begin with or what was it that helped plan out that kind of activity or that piece of learning? When did kind of the attention drop off? What might they do next time that would be different? It's about kind of reflecting on learning, but kind of thinking about the process rather than just the outcome. And so many parents ask those questions intuitively, but may not have known the, you know, the fancy word of metacognition. It's the same for trainee teachers. They come into a session with me on metacognition and throw, throw a few definitions out there. And it sounds quite scary and quite academic talk. But then we're reassured that we're talking about kind of reflection and self-regulation, the kind of things that we're, we're doing day in, day out, and that perhaps more typically as adults and perhaps older children, we are doing in our heads regularly. We can recognise that kind of we are thinking about things, reflecting and taking a note of kind of what we might be doing different next time. But what can be really challenging for teachers, but for all of us supporting children is kind of having those conversations out loud and modelling it ourselves in terms of if we're looking over a piece of homework, we have to get our heads around it first. We have to 
read through the question and kind of think about what does it mean? What's the key thing? What do I have to draw upon that I've previously learned in order to apply it to kind of complete this activity? That's a challenging thing to kind of talk out loud and kind of model for children kind of how they might work through problems. One of the things that I think is hugely beneficial, I've never seen it done, but a, a school or a teacher providing a video of how they actually ask these questions around learning to a child in their care. So parents often are very good at sort of when it's modeled to them, they can really, you know, replicate that at home. And I think that it's a shame in a way that it isn't sort of more of a focus of schools to kind of, they they say that they're doing this stuff at school, but parents, if, if they just have those sort of conversational prompts, they're they're quite, you know, soon they get quite confident in that approach and they understand very quickly what, what the teachers are trying to achieve in asking those fantastic questions that focus on the process of learning. Yeah, I think I think it has been a real challenge, but I wonder if there is this opportunity from having had to move to online learning and having to schools having to invest in things like Microsoft Teams or Zooms or their own kind of homework platform and sometimes putting in place videos or live sessions. I think in the past there's always been kind of this barrier around kind of videoing things in school. There's all kind of safeguarding implications around this and technology barriers as well. But I think from from having been through kind of the situation where we've needed to adjust to online learning, there might be more opportunities for videoed instructions. But I think just step-by-step guides are always going to be helpful and can be more accessible. Now, Darren, I know that you're heavily involved in sort of teacher training and education. And I used to work in a school of education, you know, as a researcher, observing all of that taking place. What is teacher training like these days? You know, do teacher trainees get access to the kind of the evidence base that that you and I are referring to? Do they get training around parental engagement or working with parents in general? Oh, very much, very much so. I obviously can't can't talk for other institutions. The the striking thing about teacher training that perhaps may be different if we were to go back maybe 15 or 20 years is how intertwined the theory and practice is. And I know that this is applicable whether we're talking about university-led teacher training like ours, and our model kind of front loads quite a lot of the university learning or what some people might refer to as the theory that's then applied in practice versus some more school-led modes where trainees are in school for the vast majority of the year um, and any of the kind of more theoretical stuff might be kind of wrapped around the practice that's always happening in school. That kind of theory-practice relationship is the key thing. It would never be enough in teacher training to just experience parental engagement So to just be attending and taking a role in parents' evening or making phone calls home, that wouldn't be enough to kind of evidence teacher standards, but neither would it be enough to say, take a look at Education Endowment Foundation guidance reports about parental engagement to kind of think about, here are some strategies that I would put in practice if I had the need. There's also kind of that need to put it into practice, but also reflect on how it went and how it fits in with 
yourself as a teacher, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that there's yeah a great deal of an emphasis on on the evidence base and reflection and continual CPD, I suppose, as well. Yeah, I think they they can be a challenge in terms of trainees getting really involved in kind of the research and the academic literature and kind of weighing up the challenges in terms of how different aspects of teaching might need to take place and then going out into schools and kind of I think learning that there needs to be a certain amount of adjustment in terms of what I might have read in a research paper isn't necessarily going to be the thing that I can implement in this placement because I'm inheriting classes that another teacher has taught. I don't want to reinvent the wheel that's going to be disruptive for pupils I need to kind of blend in some of the ideas and some of the practices that I need to be evidencing and trying out into kind of existing situations and environments. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and, um, in terms, tell us a little bit about lovely, exciting projects or things that you're thinking about at the moment or working on or reading about. What's occupying your mind as a researcher at the moment? At the the moment, I'm meant to be writing this chapter on terminology around school attendance. So I'll I'll say say a little bit about that. I think when when a colleague first first said to me that, so she was interested in links between school attendance and emotional disorder. So the idea that if a young person wasn't attending school as much or at a certain level, that that might impact on their emotional difficulties but also if a young person had emotional difficulties that might mean they don't attend school as much and her comment to me and I was kind of coming at this supervising from the educational side was this is really challenging because there's so many terms for kind of problematic attendance in school it's really difficult kind of unpicking the links to emotional difficulties because you have to understand all these terms And I think I just, I chalked it up to another one of these academic things where people define terms in different ways and there's always going to be a certain amount of different definitions to get our heads around. But I think having come to read some of the literature around it, I think it is really important. So that article I mentioned earlier on by David Hain, they have nearly 50 terms for problematic attendance in school. Wow. And that's really really difficult because if we're thinking more of the practical side we want to kind of understand what is it that we should be looking out for how should we be referring to it in a non-stigmatizing non-judgmental way and then putting something into practice so if we take the example of uh, let's say we're we're talking to a head at a school and they're kind of talking about kind of attendance at the school level so they're kind of talking generally about how it is and how they might be taking steps in terms of unauthorized absence and they might be referring to a couple of individuals who are regularly not in school so the head kind of refers to mary she's school phobic so then that kind of brings to mind oh mary seems to have this kind of phobia or anxiety or worry about coming to school we would probably expect there to be some kind of treatment, some kind of adjustment that we could be be putting in place so that she can perhaps overcome that phobia or so that this school can be more appropriate for her or can take steps to gradually bring her back in 
or maybe some other different school might be appropriate for her if she really cannot attend. So that's Mary. She's school phobic. Billy is a truant. That kind of brings to mind Billy doesn't want to come to school. Billy chooses not to come to school. His parents probably don't know. They drop him off or he gets on the bus, but he doesn't turn up. He's somewhere doing something else. And I think this is really important because there is some literature that will kind of use these two terms interchangeably. Certainly terms like school refusal and truant, there's research out there that suggests that if teachers are thinking about school refusal, they tend to think of it more as an emotional response, a young person not being able to attend school and it being difficult for them, versus truancy being more behavioural or antisocial. And then that becomes really important if we're going to think about non-attendance in terms of which, which term do we use and what's the right term and also not to be judgmental in terms of when it gets difficult. Uh, and then something else that I'll be chewing over as part of this chapter that I really need to get to writing is where <laughs> do we set a line in terms of where attendance becomes problematic? Because often it's quite arbitrary. Different researchers have kind of suggested different cut points. We're hoping to get involved or my colleague Katie Finning will be hoping to carry out some research in the future that actually kind of looks at where should that cut point for persistent non-attendance be? Is there a good point at which to say if non-attendance gets to this level that might be where you ought to take some action or where we ought to think of it as problematic because at the moment there's just arguments in terms of well more than one percent is still going to have an effect on learning and could signify that there's ongoing difficulties so that's when we should take action in in england it's 10 percent is persistent non-attendance but it used to be 15 percent, and before that it used to be 20 percent. and these obviously sound like quite neat numbers and presumably there there are going to be some sort of hybrid solutions because now we know as felt like some children can do a little bit of remote learning at, at home come in in the afternoon you know it's going to look different the solution in every school isn't it it's going to look different for whoever the individual is so i think that's that's kind of the key thing and why we can perhaps understand the different terminology if there's these 50 terms that could refer to the different kinds of attendance. Some of these terms just kind of in their label, there's things like parental endorsed absence or parental encouraged absence. So they will kind of pick up that sometimes what is referred to as school withdrawal will kind of, it will have permission. Mm. Whereas sometimes school refusal will be, it's more the young person themselves. I think the why we have those terms is because there's so many individual differences in terms of what exactly might be challenging or the situation. But using those terms, if we're just referring to somebody who, hmm, they're not attending as much as they previously did, I wonder what the issue is here. I think we have to be careful in terms of how, we, how we're using that, because quite often, it needs a bit of investigation. My kind of anecdotal experience in schools is that it can be really, really difficult to get your head around why somebody doesn't want to attend school at that current point in time. And it can be changeable and it can happen very quickly. And we can't wait, can't wait too long before we consider it to be a problem. But it can take quite a bit of time and quite a bit of investigation to work out 
exactly what might be a way forward, what would actually help reintegrate somebody to school. And it tends to be kind of gentle steps back in, as you've suggested. And Darren, when is your chapter out on that particular topic, which I'm very interested in? And also, is there particular guidance that schools that you think is really uh, worth a head teacher or a teacher listening to that you think is then worth reading? Is there anything in particular you would pinpoint on, on this particular topic? So this is where I this is where I need to come clean. This this chapter shouldn't be shouldn't be too distant from kind of getting getting published because it's in a book that I'm editing with Katie Finning, who I mentioned, and with Tamsin Ford, who was a previous guest on the podcast. It's all about mental health and attendance. And my chapter talking about terminology and attendance is the last one that we're waiting for because we're just waiting for me to write it. I've been happily editing other people's chapters and saying, oh, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get to my one. Um, and now, re- now really is the time for me to get to it. I think sometime in the autumn, we're hoping to finalise all the chapters, but obviously it takes a little while to get a book ready to be published. But I think it will be sometime in 2021. In terms of practical guidance, I would point people towards work by David Hayne, And I think from him, you would probably come to some of the kind of key voices around school attendance. And what what people could also have a look at is there's an organisation called INSA. And I think David is kind of either the president or kind of responsible for putting this organisation together. It's I think it stands for International Network on School Attendance. I think they only came into being probably in 2019 and had their first conference in Norway. But everybody who's a member of that isn't just necessarily an academic interested in school attendance. They're kind of practically working either in or with schools in terms of making making a difference around school attendance. I've not looked at their website for some time, but I know that they had kind of resources out there. Thank you so much, Darren. We know you have to get on with reading that chapter because I can't wait to buy that book. So we're going to let you go after an hour of chatting. There's always plenty more to talk about. But thank you so much for joining us on the Get a Grip podcast. No problem at all, Cathy. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Get a Grip podcast. Just as a reminder, there are notes that you can actually download following each interview available on my website.